So I'd like to begin tonight with a teaching from the Buddha. Just as in a peaked house all rafters whatsoever go together to the peak, slope to the peak, join in the peak, and of them all the peak is reckoned chief. Even so, monks, the monk who cultivates and makes much of the seven factors of enlightenment slopes towards nibbana, inclines to nibbana, and tends to nibbana. So tonight, continuing on with the exploration of the seven factors of enlightenment, um, these factors being that which slopes the mind towards the freeing the mind from the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, the forces that keep us caught in states of torment, that keep us in pain. So we've already spoken about mindfulness, which is uh, kind of the linchpin of all of these seven factors of enlightenment. Um, Mindfulness, the memory to remember, the connecting with our experience moment to moment. We moved on to investigation, the um, quality in the mind that illuminates, that helps us to be able to discern what is seen, helps us be able to be able to recognize uh, both the specific characteristics of our experience, the unique qualities that we might experience, such as warmth, tingling, vibration, tension, and also to be able to recognize uh, the nature of our experience, how things are continually changing. So tonight, moving on to the next of the seven factors, that being that of energy or effort. In my own experience, I find this one to be the most humbling of all of the seven factors. We might find that we struggle a lot with having effort or energy and the struggle can be anything from, you know, not having any energy and, you know, just simply nodding off, falling asleep. Or it can be um, having so much energy that we find ourselves restless and agitated. At times in my own practice, I've thought that I'm probably the master of wrong effort, wrong energy. (laughs) In fact, at one point in my life, I lived in a spiritual community where the practice, the main practice was work and really, you know, bringing our full effort um, to the work that we did. And in that community, I got nicknamed Deva Slava. And it was not from practicing (laughs) right effort. There is many times, besides what I've mentioned when we're working with right effort, besides a time when there's such an excess of energy or when we're simply nodding off, you know, we're working with effort or energy when we find that we can sit for very long periods of time. 
when it becomes quite effortless. We also are working with effort or energy when difficulties arise. And, you know, effort is what will help us to stay present, to be able to open to these experiences. And, you know, we may not have a lot of effort or energy in the times when we find that we are shying away from these difficulties. We find that we're working with right effort when, just in how we bring the attention to the experience of the breath. You know, if we're desperately gripping on to the breath, No, it's likely that we're applying too much effort. If we find that when we turn the attention to the breath, there's just this kind of haze in which we can't perceive the breath, we're probably not applying uh, enough effort. It's very common that we will vacillate between one extreme and the other from you know, having so much energy and at times getting agitated from that, distressed almost, because there's so much energy, or finding that almost as if we're just falling flat on our faces. We also experience this, uh, you know, at times when the practice has been quite effortless and it's just been flowing. And then suddenly things change. And when there's a shift that uh, goes from effortless energy into a place where we actually need to apply ourselves more to really rally up the energy to meet the moment, sometimes we don't like it. We get resistant. So there's many different ways that we will uh, be calling upon effort or energy. And, you know, I've also seen in my own practice that I would really love for there to be a magic formula that one could apply in order to have the right amount of effort or energy that keeps the perfect balance in the mind. And whenever I hear a talk on right effort, I hope that this magic formula will be provided. I've never quite heard it, so I hope you're not sitting there with any great expectation. It's a lesson we really have to learn for ourselves. And it's not easy. We learn it through encountering laziness, dullness, times of apathy. We learn it through the times when we over-apply, become tight and contracted in the meeting of our experience. But it's a journey we all need to undertake and explore to be able to come to understand it in our own experience. We find that effort or energy is not just something uh, that we need on the cushion, that it's very vital in our lives, that we need it in order to survive in the world. We need a certain amount of effort, energy to be able to feed ourselves, 
to be able to go off to work, to provide for ourselves, to offer ourselves into society. We also probably are quite aware that when we don't have effort or energy, there can be a lot of struggle in our lives. That, you know, at times when there's really a low, depleted energy, this can lead into states of depression. And in, you know, in certain instances, we may find that we just cannot move hardly and, you know, may find um, living in a state of poverty because of this. So it's not, energy is not limited to our practice, but there is a very specific type of energy that is spoken about uh, in relationship to the seven factors of enlightenment and in relationship to right effort or energy. And this is energy that is accompanied by wisdom and directed towards awakening. It's a very wholesome energy that finds support, that finds wisdom to guide it. And it's directed very specifically to breaking through the veils of ignorance in our minds. It's an energy that is not daunted or overwhelmed in the face of difficulty. In these times, it actually gives support. It has a courageous aspect to it that can be steady when difficulties or seemingly obstacles arise. We probably all have experienced energy that's not accompanied by wisdom, where this is where it can lead to the restlessness, can lead into really irritated states where we just don't know what to do with all of this energy. Um, We, at these times, might find that the mind is very jumpy, not able to clearly connect with experience. We can may have also found in our lives that there can be a lot of energy and we find we can climb mountains, we can do triathlons. Um, Many of us might be very active in our work and can actually become workaholics. Or we might find that we can travel around the world and yet we don't seem to be able to become any wiser. we find that energy without wisdom can actually be very painful. So it needs to be guided by wisdom. And it also needs to be held within this aspiration to awaken or to be able to see clearly. In the Buddha's teachings on the Noble Eightfold Path, He defined right effort as being the wholesome energy directed towards liberation, needing to be guided or supported by right view and right intention. So 
right effort, wholesome energy directed towards liberation that needs to be guided or supported by right view. Right view is that which helps us to have a sense of direction towards that which will lead to liberation of the heart or that which is in accordance with the way things are. So we have some sense of direction. This right view becomes supported by the understanding of the law of karma. That um, the, the actions, the things that we do in our life have consequences. The seeds that we plant have consequences. And when we have some understanding of that, that helps to set the direction of our life. That we are planting seeds that will bear fruits of liberation, that will bear wholesome fruits, that will lead to uplifting qualities in the mind. If we're holding some view of life that um, is tarnished in some way or has, is, doesn't have correct understanding, it will only lead us down the path of more suffering. So it's very important that we call forth energy or effort in our life, but that we let it be guided by this aspect of right view, that which is going to lead us in the direction of the alleviation of suffering. The Buddha also said we need to have right intention. And when he spoke about right intention, he spoke about thoughts of renunciation, generosity, non-harming. So we learn to apply our effort or energy in a way that actually alleviates the suffering. In a, we apply our effort or energy in a way that um, is non-harmful to others and is generous, that embraces others. We learn to apply our effort or energy in the way of renunciation, which is an aspect of wisdom, of letting go, of simplifying, relinquishing. So right effort being the wholesome energy that is directed towards liberation and supported by right view and right intention.
this effort or energy really supplies the momentum for staying on the path, for staying diligent, for staying steadfast. Often when we think of energy, we might think of it in the way of energy consumption, that we have a certain amount of energy and we need to apply it in a uh, certain way and conserve energy at times. You know, we might think of it in, in one aspect as being limited in the same way that the oil fields have limited energy, limited resources within them. And this can lead to some tendencies in the mind that really don't serve us. And I was reading in the commentaries uh, ways that they expressed some of these tendencies, and they certainly were recognizable in my own experience. So I'd like to share some of these with you. So one has work to do and thinks, here is the work that I have to do. That in doing it, I will tire myself. Therefore, I shall lie down. And by doing so, one fails to stir up the energy for the attainment of the unattained. Or one has, some, has finished some work, and it occurs to them that they are tired by doing that work, and therefore they should lie down, and fails to stir up the energy for the attainment of the unattained. Or one has to go on a journey, and thinking of this, one thinks one will tire, so they lie down. Or one has been on a journey and therefore is tired. Or one collects one's meal and seen as insufficient worries about tiredness. Or one eats sufficient food and thinks that their body is heavy and unpliable and so lies down. One becomes sick and thinking that it might become worse assumes that one is tired. Or after an unillness, one thinks that the body has not recovered and is weak and unpliable. So these are all actually quite recognizable in my own experience. Maybe they are for you. <clears throat> and what they point to is the need to watch the thinking mind in relationship to energy. Because it's so easy to fall into thinking, well, I have to do this later, so I better rest now. You know, and this is going into this energy consumption. And it isn't, it isn't about meeting the moment with the energy required to meet our experience. It's about what we think might come to be. Or about the fear of how things might unfold, which is not based in Uh, the way things are. I really learned about this when I had chronic fatigue earlier in my life. And, you know, when I first got it, I would sleep for many, many hours. And then at one point, I decided rather than sleeping so much, I would meditate. And Many times I found that if I meditated, I actually had more energy than if I slept. But I, you know, for a long time had carried this idea 
that because I was sick, this is what I needed to do. And there was no energy, so this was how to work with it. And it, it actually led to a foggier, duller, duller mind state. And yet, by just sitting and meeting my experience in the moment, it began to replenish the energy, to arouse energy. And not through, you know, making a, a really, uh, stri- you know, really striving with the energy, but just by meeting my experience. The commentaries offer another way of uh, working with these same tasks. And it says, instead of arousing indolence, one can arouse earnestness, such as seeing that one has work to do, realizes the time for practice will be limited, so applies oneself in the moment. Or, after having done a job, realizes that at that time one could not turn their full attention towards the highest attainment, and then stirs themselves in this moment. So looking to see our thoughts that might be barring an arousing of energy or effort. The Buddha also talked about there being four great endeavors. The first of these four great endeavors is to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mind states. To prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mind states. We do this when we are diligent with mindfulness. Mindfulness being the protector, keeping us from being carried away by these experiences. Mindfulness helps us to keep the hindrances in check. It helps us to guard the sense doors. We can also temporarily prevent the arising of the unarisen, unwholesome mind states by strengthening concentration. Sometimes when concentration becomes very strong, the the hindrances are naturally kept at bay. This is only a temporary measure, but it helps us to really come to know the beauty of the mind when there is no unwholesome states present. We can also help to prevent these unwholesome mind states from arising by setting up nourishing conditions in our lives where we have wise friends whom inspire us, whom set an example, who call out the best in us. Setting up nourishing conditions when we simplify our lives when we uh, put ourselves in situations that will be supportive to uh, calling forth wholesome states in our lives, where we won't find ourselves so constantly on the edge of temptation. 
We can also prevent the arising of unarisen wholesome states when we recognize in our own minds the deeply habituated tendencies that we have that keep getting us caught in pain and suffering. And when we start getting into difficult terrain, giving ourselves extra support, such as when we're walking in the dining room and we're continually struggling with looking at what everybody else is doing we go to a more secluded area to walk. Or at times in the day, might be a particular time in the day when we struggle a lot with sloth and torpor, with sleepiness. So as a means of support, it might be a good time not to sit right beside your bed, to find somewhere else to sit. So we find ways of giving support The biggest way that we prevent the arising of the unarisen, unwholesome mind states is when we really have a bigger picture of how mindfulness works. Because as uh, mindfulness helps us to see into these unwholesome mind states, we start to see them clearly and directly, and they lose their power over us. As a result, our fear diminishes. We no longer feed them. The second great endeavor that the Buddha spoke about was to abandon the unwholesome states that have already arisen. So this is to abandon that which is harmful, painful, And sometimes this will be very easy. Just in the arising of unwholesome mind states, we might find that there is a letting go, that we are aware of the pain of hanging on when something is really eating us up. And so the effort or energy is just, let's go instantaneously. But despite our best efforts, Uh, many times these unwholesome mind states will arise due to karmic seeds that have been planted in the past. And we can't stop them from arising, but we can cease to nourish them. Mindfulness again is the key. As they arise, simply letting go. With that recognition, we can see clearly. We can know of the pain, the suffering, and just simply letting go. We can also call upon the quality of investigation, bringing together both mindfulness and investigation, and experiencing deeply the qualities that are present in these unwholesome mind states. This will help to uh, bring about the energy needed to release, to let go. If the unwholesome mind states persist, 
then we can replace it with a wholesome mind state. For example, when attachment is present, we can reflect on impermanence, seeing how this object of our attachment is impermanent in its very nature, or that the happiness that we would gain from having this object is impermanent. Or we could replace uh, the unwholesome quality of anger with the practice of loving-kindness. You know, in the recognition that the anger is going to lead to more suffering, we can turn our minds towards loving-kindness, friendliness, a caring aspect of the heart. If this unwholesome mind state still persists, then we can reflect on the faults of this unwholesome state, how harmful or hurtful, damaging this state can be. And, you know, that can be just seen in the moment, how much pain is caused by identifying with this mind state. And sometimes it may still persist. And we may have to really pull out um, the sword of wisdom and just say enough. Just cut it in that moment. I was quite amazed a couple of years ago when I was sitting in a retreat here with Sayadaw Upandita and it felt like I was being really quite diligent in my practice. And there was a monk also teaching with um, Sayadaw named Uwakananda. And in my interviews with him, he kept saying to me, keep your mind pure. And just his saying that to me highlighted in my own experience the number of times that really just little judgments, little niggling thoughts arose. And, you know, somewhere it wasn't discouraging, um, but it, it, it felt so good to see them, not to pretend they weren't there, but just to recognize them. And that really helped me to just let go. The Buddha said that the third great endeavor was to arouse unarisen, wholesome states. One of the ways that we can do this is to practice sila in our lives, to really take care with our words and actions. This in itself, aside from the fact that you know, we're not causing harm to others, helps to bring a joy and gladness to our own minds and hearts. You know, and it just helps to bring a buoyancy to the mind. And maybe periods where maybe our sila has, we've struggled with it. But we can also just take time to reflect back to a time when we were really able to act in the way of non-harming 
and to let that bring a joy and gladness to our minds. To know that we have had moments where wisdom did prevail. This will help to arouse the wholesome mind states. We also help to arouse these wholesome mind states when we practice with the four foundations of mindfulness and the seven factors of enlightenment. If we stay steady in our practice, this helps to bring up all of these wholesome mind states. The fourth great endeavor that the Buddha talked about is to maintain the already arisen wholesome states. And this is described as to keep firmly in mind a favorable object of concentration that has arisen. And it's really about knowing what our practice is, what our object of meditation is, and to stay steady in the returning to this object of meditation. In vipassana or insight meditation, we may be working with the breath, or we may be working with our changing experience. And we just stay steady in coming back to our um, meditation object over and over again. We keep it firmly in mind without wavering. These, to me, are very practical ways that the Buddha spoke about that we can work with right effort, right energy. Very practical applications. I know often in our experience, or in my own mind anyways, I've related uh, right effort, right energy, to being a superhuman effort that overrides the fact that we are human beings. I remember this very clearly from a time when I was practicing in Burma, and I was trying to make that superhuman effort and found that, you know, I was just wearing myself into the ground, accelerating the rate of bodily decay. And there was no apparent arising of the wisdom factor. I was pushing on myself very, very hard. And then one day, I was uh, sitting in a Dharma talk, and Sayada Ujjanaka was speaking. And he was speaking about right effort or right energy. And so, you know, at that time, my ears really picked up because, you know, I was in such a state of pain. And he, he just spoke about how, he said, you know, sometimes there will be strong energy, strong effort, and sometimes there won't be. And then he said, why? Why is this so? And then he said, because we are human. And it seemed like this was something that I had overlooked. I had seen the lack of energy as meaning that there was some flaw, something wrong with me. Uh, I'd taken it very personally. I also had been holding strong ideas about what my practice should look like, how it should be unfolding, and making a great effort to try to make that happen. 
So this was a really huge teaching for me around right effort, right energy. Actually, when we have these ideas about what our practice should look like, what our effort or energy should look like, um, we can at times be fostering very unwholesome mind states, you know, where it can be an energy of striving, pushing, and might be fostering uh, greed in the mind, that wanting mind, wanting some experience other than what we have. Um, Or we could be at times fostering aversion, where we think we, we should be able to let go, wanting to push away our experience, and you know, fostering unwholesome mind states. <clears throat> Another um, kind of idea or should that we might have uh, around right effort on long retreats You know, some of you are here for rather extended periods of time, maybe the longest retreat you've ever sat. And so you might come to it having had sat a number of retreats that were 10 days long. And so you come thinking that your effort or energy is going to be just the same as it was in a shorter retreat. And, you know, a short attended, well, maybe when we first sat a 10-day retreat, that was long. But, you know, if you're here for several months now, that might seem shorter. But when we sit, like a 10-day retreat, you know, in some ways it's like running a sprint. You can, for 10 days, be pretty committed and pay pretty steady attention to really arousing a lot of effort or energy. But try to do that for six months, and it's going to hurt. So, you know, just to realize that, um, that it's different conditions. And effort or energy really has to work with whatever conditions are present. There's really no magic formula because conditions are always changing. I often think about effort or energy in relationship to uh, skiing, downhill skiing, something I did a lot of earlier in my life and learned a lot about applying effort or energy. And, you know, in downhill skiing, conditions are always changing. Even on one run, you can be met with uh, many different types of snow. And sometimes the Snow may be a light, fine powder, of which if you're familiar with skiing, you know that you very sensitively push your skis into that snow until the snow starts to push back. Or, you know, it may be that you go from skiing on some powder into some ice. And if, when you hit ice, if you try and push your edge in, you know, the skis will just fly out from under your feet. Or... Um, you know, if you find yourself in really slushy snow, it can take a really monumental amount of effort to turn those skis. You might find yourself on hard pack snow, and, you know, that's where the edges just hold firmly and steadily. So in our practice, we learn to work with 
finding the effort or energy that is needed to meet our experience in any moment. Just enough to meet our experience. So if we're laying in bed in the morning and we really wake up and we're really sleepy, if we just note sleepy, sleepy, it's probably not going to meet our experience. We'll find ourselves waking up a half hour later. You know, that's going to be a moment when we're going to have to call upon our deepest wisdom and probably sit up and become aware of experience. If we're being hyper-diligent in coming back to the breath and the mind is becoming very tight and contracted, probably means we're applying too much effort. And we're going to need to relax and receive our experience, either receiving the experience of the breath or opening up to a greater spaciousness of mind through hearing. Sometimes we find when we think our energy is lagging too much that we become, we become rigid in the face of it and we try really, really hard. And, you know, it often doesn't work. You know, it might be more skillful in that moment to reflect on impermanence. That might arouse a more natural energy. In the arousing of effort or energy, it can be helpful to reflect on the effect of having faith. What happens when we have strong faith? We find that when we have strong faith, there is a natural willingness to apply effort or energy that, um, you know, as we began our practice, we had some kind of faith that got us motivated. And then as we continued on in our practice, we may have really come to see things in a new light, in a new way, in our own minds. And when that happened, probably it became very easy to practice because there was this strong faith. And so, faith is a natural way for the arousing of energy. It's it's not trying to bring about energy through the way of imposing something, that we should be able to call forth this superhuman effort. But it is an effort or energy that arises from within. Spiritual urgency is said to be the proximate cause for the arising of effort. Where we're not taking for granted 
this moment where we're in touch with the preciousness of this life, to know how rare and precious it is to have a human birth. There's a a description that I really love about the preciousness of a human birth, and that's where uh, it's likened to a pea being dropped from an airplane, and this pea is caught on the head of a tiny pin. And this is how rare and precious it's described to be to have this human birth. If we really could understand that deeply, we wouldn't take our lives for granted. I'd like to share a teaching from Nagarjuna. Life flickers in the flurries of a thousand ills, more fragile than a bubble in a stream. In sleep, each breath departs and is again drawn in. How wondrous that we wake up living still. The preciousness of this life. commentaries, they talk about 11 ways to bring about energy or effort. So I'd like to speak about a few of these. Uh, One is reflecting on states of misery. This is the entanglement we get into when uh, we're caught in pain and struggle, when we are savaged by our own minds, caught in confusion and bewilderment. If we reflect upon these states, it does help to bring about this spiritual urgency, which then leads to the arising of effort or energy. Another way is to be aware of the benefits and advantages of having energy remembering the times when we have been able to cut through delusion and see things clearly, and how that led to a lightening of the heart. Another way to arouse energy is to have appreciation for the support and generosity of others. Just in our being here, Many people have supported us, whether it's through you know, somebody giving you money to come here or getting a um, scholarship in being here, whether it's through the meal dana or people taking care of our children or uh, people taking care of our mail or whatever it might be at home. Um, the staff supports us in being here. And so just reflecting on other people's generosity can help us to want to be a worthy recipient and to just do the best that we can uh, in our practice so that we can offer back to the world 
another way to arouse energy is to to reflect on the priceless spiritual heritage that we have inherited from a long line of enlightened beings. This to me is a powerful reflection to uh, in looking at what the spiritual heritage means, it's the qualities that can be embodied in an awakened mind. And so these are qualities of faith, morality, uh, compassion, generosity, wisdom. And these are all qualities that many people walking this path before us have come to realize and that this is a lineage that we too can be a part of. We can also reflect on the, all of these individuals ha- who have awakened. You know, going back to the Buddha, uh, disciples who lived in the time of the Buddha, such as Ananda, Sariputta, Moggallana. You know, I remember once reading the book Great Disciples of the Buddha, and it was totally inspiring to me. It inspired me uh, in a way that I looked at my own life and I thought, am I doing enough? Am I really doing enough in my life? And at that point, I decided to go and temporarily ordain in Burma, to, you know, just from the place of inquiry to see, is there more that I can do? There's people living in the world today that may deeply inspire us. Um, People such as Tenzin Palmo, a Western Tibetan nun who spent many, many years in solitude in Tibet uh, looking into her own mind. Or people who have lived, people like Deepama. Many of you have heard stories of Deepama, a little Bengali woman who, you know, I read a book that she, uh, she didn't write it, but it was inspired from her teachings. And it was a real blast of energy to read it, very deeply inspiring. And so sometimes reflecting on some of these people can bring about great inspiration, energy. It's also said that it's helpful to have complete avoidance of association with those who are lazy and indolent. We're very susceptible to the forces around us. It's also helpful to have constant association with those who are active and energetic. And this is why it can be helpful to sit with Sangha, to sit with people who are practicing, who help to inspire us. It's also said to be helpful to incline the mind towards the development of energy. Staying true to the effort to turn up to our experience, to be with our experience, and to simply do the best that we can in that. And to rest in the simplicity of meeting our experience moment after moment. So staying really steady in just applying effort or energy to meet our experience. 
mental energy, effort. It's a very dynamic force. It's a very vital force in our lives. It's not a fixed commodity. And it needs to be supported by wisdom. It needs to be supported by right view, right intention. And then it can carry us right through on this journey of awakening. It will have help us to have the energy to uh, cultivate the other factors of enlightenment. <clears throat> it will help us to support the mind when it faces difficulty. The manifestation of energy is a bold, brave, or courageous mind. This is a mind that has the willingness to meet the moment, that doesn't collapse, isn't overwhelmed in the face of difficulty. Remembering that effort or energy isn't always a really severe force of energy, that sometimes it's very sensitive, very light, a light touch in the moment. It's just whatever it takes to meet this moment. So let's sit for a moment. May all beings have the effort or energy to stay steadfast on the path until they are completely free. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.